Welcome to The Rebound, where we'll explore the issues facing supply chain managers as our industry gets back up and running in a post-COVID world. This podcast is hosted by Abe Eskenazi, CEO of the Association for Supply Chain Management, and Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Abe and Bob welcome your comments. Now to today's episode. Hello and welcome to today's episode of The Rebound. Say goodbye to 2022. I'm Bob Troublecock. And I'm Abe Eskenazi. Abe, I don't know if you realize this, but by my count, this is the 49th episode we've recorded since we launched The Rebound in the summer of 2020. We are almost to the big 5-0, and I wish I could say that about my birthday coming up. I, w- I was looking back over some of the episodes, and we've had such a great variety of guests from Caddy Kay, the BBC journalist, Yossi Sheffi, one of our industry's real thought leaders, to any number of supply chain officers. It's been a great run so far, and I, for one, am looking forward to 2023. I couldn't agree with you more, Bob. I, we've been um, hearing and seeing so many changes within the supply chain industry, not only for the professionals, but for the consumers and the industry alike. It's been quite a ride to see how companies and our guests have navigated the past couple of years. Uh, It seems like supply chain is everybody's business these days. And I remember launching this whole idea was um, there's all kinds of things going on in the supply chain right now. The supply chain has really come to the fore. And let's kind of focus on the good things going on because of course, in the 2020, we were in the news for like all the bad reasons. So uh, I think we've come through that. So let's do what we did in 2020 and 2021 and look back at what happened in the last year. I made a list of four or five trends that I'd like to bounce off of you. The first, when it comes to operating the supply chain, you know, that was the thing that took the first big hit in 2020 when we shut down, we couldn't get people, all of that, the making things, transporting things, storing things. My impression is we're back to normal. Manufacturing and fulfillment execs have all told me, yeah, they're going to have a hiccup here and there or maybe for a shift. But for the most part, it's full steam ahead for them. What are you hearing? Uh, That's consistent with the feedback that we're getting. Um, While there may be spot shortages, it appears that we're on the backside of the bullwhip effect. And all of our supply chain professionals clearly understand the challenges that we've had with the beginning of the pandemic, with the demand surges and the demand shifts. And U.S. manufacturing, I think we've experienced a significant rebound. We've caught up to the demand that identified early in the pandemic. However, I think what we're seeing now is that perhaps on the backside of the bowl of effects and maybe some excess inventories that buffer some of the challenges or the disruptions that we encountered, But we're seeing companies now adding workers amid the high consumer demand for products. Uh, I think collectively, manufacturers are remaking their supply chains to take advantage of the next disruption. I don't think anybody has predicted that we're out of the disruption phase right now, especially with China and the challenges that we're seeing there. But supply chain challenges are still acute and unfolding. There's no mistaking that manufacturers face disruptions globally but they appear to have at least addressed the manufacturing side in terms of identifying the supply and addressing demand. But what is real demand right now? I think that's everybody's you know, holy grail. Operations people have pretty consistently said to me, we figured this out. Uh, of course, they're gonna, we're going to come to that in a minute. They're going to be subject to a plan, right? Um, so you give them a plan, they're going to make it. Uh, whether the plan's right or wrong, that's a whole different thing. But I do think they figured out how to operate and, um, 
you know, they're still struggling with, uh, we're going to talk about talent in a little bit, but I know they're real, they're still struggling with labor shortages. And we're seeing a lot of, I'm seeing a lot of innovative things, even down at the floor level mm-hmm. in terms of how to address, you know, the labor shortage or how to prepare manufacturing for a labor constrained environment. That's pretty exciting. So you just hit on, uh, on, on the next point I wanted to go to, because I don't think the same can be said for planning and procurement. And what struck me about that, when I first started editing a supply chain management review like 10 years ago, planning and procurement were supply chain management. You know, that was kind of a, the foundation. Um, and I think we've heard from many of our guests uh, that when it comes to those two functions, organizations are still trying to get it right. As an example, I want to start with planning. Uh, you mentioned true demand, and um, you know we had Lynn Terrell from uh, Flex, what used to be Flextronics, on, and Lynn had said to me in a separate interview that um, she's trying to start a consortium of high-tech electronics manufacturers who can bring their orders into a nonprofit, you know, non-biased, so that they can all try and get some idea of what everybody's going to make to figure out whether their suppliers can make it. I mean, I think everybody is struggling with that. How are you, what are you, what are you hearing from planning? Yeah, I think you've hit upon it. Uh, I think this is among the biggest challenges that supply chain professionals are facing right now. Um, organizations have made significant investments in visibility and transparency to address the gap that we experienced in the beginning part of the pandemic. We did not have sufficient visibility into the extended supply chains, and that created significant challenges for their tier one suppliers beyond you know, where they probably had uh, a much better relationship versus your tier two and tier three suppliers, where they probably had less visibility and understanding as to what was impacting them. But I think we need to go back to you know, sort of the, the foundation of planning and procurement. This is the foundation of just-in-time that if you plan appropriately and that you source appropriately, you should be able to reduce your operational costs and you know address your demand and a qualified plan appropriately. And I think this is where a lot of organizations right now are facing significant challenges in terms of their planning horizons. How far out can you plan for your, you know, your sales and operations planning? And I think collectively, what we've heard is that they've shortened it to provide greater agility and, re, you know, resiliency to whatever pandemic or whatever disruption, whether it be geopolitical, environmental, that they face in the future. And so, going back to the core of this, planning and procurement obviously were at the core of just in time. We had a uh, just a recent episode on is just-in-time dead? And I think we all collectively agreed, no, it's not. But I think you have to marry that with the just-in-case. How do you respond to future demand surges and disruptions in the supply chain? And I think this is what's creating a significant amount of anxiety for supply chain professionals. What does real demand look like for you know what your planning horizons are? Obviously, a planning horizon for a plane is significantly different than for a toaster or an iron. But collectively, what we've seen is that planning horizons have shrunk with a much greater emphasis on agility and resiliency to address whatever disruptions occur into the future. Um, Again, this is core to supply chains in addressing and responding to the demand in the consumer or the patient's marketplace. So you just mentioned just-in-time, and I was going to ask you, do you think just-in-time is dead? I know in a conversation with uh, Yossi, 
he had said to me, you know, everybody says just in time is dead. It just works too well. Just in time isn't going to be dead. And he said, everybody's talking about the global supply chain is over. It's not. It just works too well. I've what I've wondered is, you know, everything I read with regard to the transportation side, which is so crucial to doing just in time, right? Yeah, your suppliers have to make it, but you still got to be able to get it there just in time. And everything I read about transportation, and I'm not a transportation expert, is the shortages. You know, we've we've gone almost this reverse where, you know, the cost of a container went from $4,000 to $28,000. It's back to $4,000, right? And and the shipping guys are saying, we don't have enough capacity to fill out our ships. Uh, I'm, I'm reading about trucking companies saying, well, you know, we don't have, you know, enough volume. Do you think that the sort of slowdown that's hitting transportation actually frees us up to go back to just in time because those assets that you need to make just in time work might now be available? It's an interesting point. We've been taking a look at this in a couple of different ways relative to just in time and the entire supply chain. And uh, let's go back to when the ports where we couldn't get any of the ships into the ports and we had a lot right. of congestion. And again, uh, I think the government and their infinite wisdom, you know, identified, well, we need to open up the ports 24-7, get and reduce this backlog of ships, and we've sent some to the East Coast. I, I think what uh, what is occurring is that the, the, you know, the disruption bubble is moving down the system. We identified before that manufacturing has caught up. Now, how do we get the product to market? And what does market look like today, whether it's in the distribution center or retail outlet or a dark store? I think we've pushed the, you know, the disruption bubble down the line a little bit away from the manufacturing and now into logistics, the warehousing and distribution problems are now popping up right now, um, especially as we're dealing with excess inventories all along the supply chain. And so, you know, when we take a look at logistics, I, I think we've got to have a much better, you know, relationship, not only in terms of data, where the product is and how do we get it from point A to point B. But I'm, I'm hesitant to say that there is a, a holy grail on data. Uh, we've seen it with the flow initiative with the federal government that they're expecting manufacturers and distributors to let them know where their inventory is and what their production plans are. Uh, yeah. I think collectively, I think we all recognize that's a fairly you know, ambitious initiative. And then we saw this also with FMC that, you know, the, you know, for the, the maritime, it, that what they're requesting is that all the shippers identify where their containers are and what's in the containers. Again, a really ambitious initiative. I don't know how many private enterprises are willing to give you the data on this. So uh, I think we're still in a period of development and disruption within the logistics industry that's been pushed down from the manufacturing and the planning side right now. I think we're I don't think we've seen the end of the logistics challenges or opportunities for improvement in logistics, different ways to respond to the logistics, specifically in last mile. Well, you know, to your last point in terms of the giving that information about where your containers and what's in the containers, I don't know, put put aside willing. Um, I don't know how many shippers today are able and are are willing to invest in. There are technologies out there that will enable that. And I know of companies, uh, Stanley Black & Decker did a thing like that, where they could tell you where on the ship a particular container was located and what was in that container so that they could prioritize how they were going to unload the ship according to what they needed, right? Mm -hmm. You don't know how many companies have invested in that. And I think in this arena, 
different, but but drives the point home. Uh, you know, Maersk uh, just shut down their trade lens blockchain initiative. Mm-hmm. Now, whether it was going to give you, you know, item level in a container in a ship, I don't know. But the point was they couldn't get buy-in and investment on the part of their trading partners to participate. So it sounds great to say, well, give me all that information. Mm-hmm. Most companies don't have that information, I don't yeah. think. It, yeah. it, that's That's a way off. The availability and the quality of information really becomes a challenge for a lot of these organizations. And that uh, I think we saw that at the beginning of the pandemic, transparency and visibility. We didn't right. have visibility into the information and we didn't have accurate information from the you know tier two and three traditionally small and medium-sized organizations. So the capability uh, to, to the point that you're driving home in terms of you know how accurate and how available is the data, then we have to take a look at the capability of the partners to be able to aggregate and input right. that information. And I don't think we're there yet collectively in the global supply chain. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. Um, so we talked about planning, the other you know foundational process. And, and I think that along with planning has really been rocked is procurement. I always think of procurement, you know, I go to a lot of conferences and the procurement guys are always like the Rodney Dangerfield of the supply chain, right? They they don't get no respect. And uh, they're just always forced on, get it to me cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. What did you, you know, what did you do for me later? Given the challenges I think that everybody experienced in 2021, it does appear as if companies are recognizing A, that risk management is a deal, is a big thing, and that that's going to start with procurement because procurement is one dealing with their suppliers and their supplier suppliers. I, I think we're, we're going to have uh, in 2023, Lenda Candia, who uh, recently retired as the global uh, CPO for J&J. And his thesis is supply was so reliable and transportation was so reliable that for 20 years, we invested in the customer, right? Everything was customer facing. He calls it CRM, but says everything was customer facing. We didn't invest in the supplier or SRM. And he said, you know, the company that's going to win in the future is the company that's got stuff on the shelf. And that's going to be procurement. That's going to be supplier. Long preamble, but what are you hearing since you're now doing procurement as part of uh, ASCM? Yeah, interesting question. And let's dial the clock back a little bit. I think you and I both remember when uh, if you were the CPO, you were at the top of the food chain within the organization and supply chain. Um, If you wanted to get into or part of their vendor management system, it was the CPO that you had to go to. Let's take a look at what's occurred over the past 15 to 20 years with AI, machine learning, automated procurement, committed contracts with your vendors. I don't think that the CPO role has diminished. It's just that the leadership in terms of actual human interaction has reduced. And so we're seeing much more on technology taking a much bigger role in procurement. However, purchasing managers continue to report complications. You know, their high demand, rising material cost freight, slow deliveries. These are all part of the, you know, the dynamic you know, let's go back to the discussion that we had before about the types of relationships that organizations are maintaining, specifically the tier one versus tier two and tier three. Most of the disruptions, as we discussed before, occurred at tier two and tier three, where organizations did not have early warning systems or information about the challenges that they were facing. And so most of the organizations have extraordinary commitments from their tier one suppliers, obviously with committed you know, agreements. 
but we're not, we don't have the same level of visibility or trust in the extended supply chain. And I'm going to double down on the term trust, because in order to get the information accurately and relevant in a timely basis, you need to be able to trust your partners that you can give them information and that they can give you the information. Well, first, I don't think that the, you know, tier two and tier three have invested in digital transformation the same way that, you know, major corporations have invested in it right now. Secondly, I think we're seeing a little bit more on vertical integration, controlling a little bit more on their, you know, their vendors and saying, okay, I need to ensure my supply. So I'm going to invest a little bit more in my, you know, my vendors beyond my tier one. I think the digital transformation has taken on a significant bite out of procurement in terms of human interaction in it. But in today's environment, in terms of, you know, marry the, you know, the concept of shorter planning horizons, disruptions in almost every aspect of procurement or raw materials. And you're starting to see a quite a bit more attention now paid to the procurement side and in human involvement, where we were moving away from it for a number of years into committed contracts. I think we're now back where procurement function is taking a much more human or a much more you know involved you know talent side in terms of identifying what and who you partner with and holding them accountable for your extended supply chain. Uh, I think you know that we're seeing some indications of that, especially given the disruptions that we're facing right now and the lack of, you know, sort of the sales and operations planning for what was normal planning horizons, much shorter planning horizons today. I want to come to that human in just one second, but I wanted to go back to one point you made in terms of the visibility into the tier two and tier three. And, uh, you know, you and I just had um, Skylar Covington from uh, Sunoco on a week or so ago. And one of the points that he made is that Sunoco is investing in the tier twos mm-hmm. and they're doing that in order to get information to their tier ones about what their tier ones, tier twos are doing, right? Um, so it was kind of interesting to hear Skyler talk about the investments that Sunoco is making to get visibility into the tier two and tier three because it's going to impact Sunoco's tier one. So it, just to the point you made, I think Skyler drove that home in part of what they're doing there. I'm glad you brought up the human part uh, because for the last, even before uh, the pandemic, I think, you know, for three or four years, every conference I went to, what you heard was digital transformation and technology was the focus of all those conferences. And I think that one of the things that, you know, the pandemic drove home is if you can't get people, you can't run a supply chain. Gartner came out with this term, uh, it's almost sociological, but human-centric digital automation with the idea that you're not going to get away from people. We're not going to lights out just yet. Has the pandemic, in your view, really brought the spotlight back on people? And just, you know, how do you see this uh, playing out now in supply chain since we're all battling every industry, battling for people? Yeah, Bob, I think you're bringing out a point that was an issue uh, prior to the pandemic, as you indicated, uh, Department of Labor study indicated that for six openings, we had one qualified candidate, and those were on career-oriented functions um, within supply chain. I think what we're seeing now is the talent gap at almost every level, from entry level to you know warehouse workers to logisticians, every aspect of the supply chain now is in a talent gap right now. And as I indicated before, companies are hiring right now. So that's you know a very positive sign. Now, do we have the availability 
of the individuals in the marketplace. I think that's part of the challenge is that we don't. And we're seeing a lot of interest in supply chain from, you know, colleges and universities. You know, that's exploded over the past 10 to 15 years but we still have a gap within the talent side. So that's first. Secondly, the investment in data and analytics, it has in on the, the past two years has risen to the top in terms of our trends. That has not diminished. And especially when you take a look at early warning systems and the availability and the relevancy and the timeliness of data necessary for organizations to forecast or to be able to predict what you know they need to produce, where they need to produce it, uh, I think that it's not surprising that, you know, digital transformation has risen and continues to rise to the top in terms of priorities. However, do we have the right individuals to understand the data? And, uh, you know, a number of studies indicate that the graduates coming out of school right now do not have the real world experience or have the ability to discern what the data is telling them. So it's a really dangerous combination when you're overweighted on technology in terms of, you know, the capability of all our, you know, the technology systems. And then we have individuals that may not understand the inputs or the outputs of that, you know, that data. So that's a concern. On the other side, and I think this is, you know, the, let's go back to the beginning here in terms of the talent gap. We have a DEI challenge within supply chain. We have it at the leadership level, we have it at the operational level, and we have it at the, you know, promotion or, you know, the mentoring level. Historically, you know, leaders within the supply chain have come out of finance and engineering, predominantly white male industries in the 80s and the 90s. And yet, when we take a look at the diversity coming into the workforce today, it is as broad as you can ever imagine in terms of the types and the capabilities of the individuals. But we don't have the role models. We don't have the mentors within the system right now that can provide that, you know, that resource for individuals coming into the workforce. So the people side, you know, which is key to us as an organization, we've got, you know, approximately 45 to 50,000 members within the supply chain community. And it's at every level from career oriented all the way to tertiary functions within the marketplace right now. Um, this talent gap is a, a key determinant in terms of the future for a lot of organizations having the right individuals to be able to discern what the data is telling them. All the investment in digital technologies and transformation need to be supported by capable, competent individuals. Again, there's very few organizations that can't get investments right now for digital transformation, are they able to get that same type of investment for their workforce? And again, I'm going to go back to a question that I ask almost every audience when I talk. I ask them, what's your number one asset in your company? And I think almost every company will tell you their employees. Well, if you're doing asset rationalization, what do you invest in in your best and worst of times? Your least performing asset or your best performing asset? And right. I think most would tell you that their best performing asset. This is what we'd like to see is that you know organizations commit to what they believe is their number one asset, and that's the people side of the business. So I want to stay on that theme for a minute. Um, to me, it's the big story in 2022. Uh, I really can't explain it, but is the number of conversations I've had with senior executives that start around sustainability and diversity. Um, it, it has hit the supply chain and you know, whether it's sustainable, to use a bad word or not, I don't know, uh, but it certainly seems to be, you know, top of mind route. Now, let's stay on the diversity part of it first, because you just did a research project with uh, Gartner on diversity inclusion. Uh, so before we talk about sustainability, what were your takeaways from the survey that uh, you and Gartner did? 
we have some positive news, and then we still have some systemic gaps within our marketplace. First, there is a much greater focus on DEI, specifically for large and public companies. Right. Not surprisingly, they have to report out. They're held to a much higher standard, obviously, with the availability of the information that they have to report out to the marketplace. So not surprising, large public organizations are reporting publicly on their efforts. Um, I think that's positive. What's a challenge is that we don't have consistency in terms of reporting our accountability. What you know, what one organization reports on is not the same as another company, even in the same industry. So we don't have consistency or comparability in terms of data. That's first. Uh, secondly, uh, I think that as organizations focus more on diversity and inclusion, I think they need to go beyond attracting individuals. And I think this is one of the results that, that we saw out of our salary survey that we did is that women under the age of 40 right now are out earning their male counterparts. Right. And that's a very positive indication that we're attracting more women are willing to pay more. However, that pay gap inverts the longer they stay within the industry, that men start to out earn the women the longer they stay within the job. Obviously, you know, there is a challenge relative to promotions or availability of, you know, different job role responsibilities within the marketplace that may not be afforded to women or people of color. I think we're making some good steps in attracting. I think we need to do a much better job in retaining and providing leadership opportunities for the individuals. That's first. Secondly, as we indicated before, large and public organizations are much more willing to share the information, not consistent with the small and medium-sized organizations, which if we identify as part of your supply chain, how are you doing relative to supporting your vendors in either sustainability or the DEI initiatives? And right now, we're seeing some organizations take that step in terms of assisting their suppliers to be much more compliant with DEI as well as sustainability metrics. So that's a key aspect for it because accountability is for the entire supply chain, not within your own four walls of your organizations. And so we're, we're starting to see that. I am particularly concerned about these two, the sustainability and diversity for a couple of reasons. Number one, rhetoric right now is much greater than action, uh, specifically on sustainability. Uh, our, e, you know, our study with the Economist Intelligence Unit indicated that sustainability is rising to the top in almost every organization's priorities. But yet when we take a look at the action, it doesn't match the rhetoric. By any measure, 60 plus percent of carbon three emissions are within supply chain yet less than 50% of the organizations have either identified metrics or report out on what they're doing about it. And so I think we've got to take, you know, hold up a mirror to us you know, as an industry. But I think we also need to give ourselves a break, Bob. <laughs> we've got a fire burning in almost every room of the house right now between the pandemic in China and you know, the, 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 what's going to occur within logistics and transportation and hiring. It's hard to, you know, to, to have somebody talk to you about rebuilding your house in a sustainable manner when you're trying to put out a fire in every room of your house. You know, right. let me put the fires out first. And so uh, I think we're seeing a uh, collectively a, you know, an awareness of it. Uh, I think we'd all like to see a little bit more action. And then lastly, I think we can't let the consumer off the hook here. Consumers still drive supply chain, whether we're talking about just in time or whether we're talking about compliance to human rights or sustainable products. The consumer ultimately makes the decision about what they're going to buy and where they're going to buy it and how much they're going to pay for it. 
So I think at some point we need to include the, you know, the consumer's role responsibility within this, as well as the organization's responsibility to be, you know, not only sustainable, but to do, you know, to do it in a much more effective and efficient manner. A couple of reactions. One, we have done via modern materials handling, we do a diversity and inclusion study as well. We just did our second one. And to your point about, um, you know, customers not driving the supplier diversity amongst their suppliers, 75% of the respondents in the survey that we just did said that their customers are not asking them to report on their diversity efforts. Frankly, that surprised me because I would have expected it to be higher, um, particularly because if you're dealing with publicly traded corporations or corporations that do business with the government and they've got to hit a supplier diversity target, I would have expected a, you know, a much lower percentage than that. But, but that was consistent. The other thing that was consistent with ours is uh, the number of women coming up, but also when we looked at the senior executive level, I don't, I, I, I don't remember this year's results, but when we did it last year, at the floor level, it was almost 50-50 between um, white and non-white. However, you know, that was measured. At the executive edit, it, it, it was like 70-30. And it was not just, um, you know, white versus non-white, but the biggest demographic was 55 to 65 at the leadership level. Uh, and it was male, right? So it was old white and male. Um, you know, my picture could have been there. Um, so, and I... I don't think it changed appreciably between uh, the 2021 survey and the 2022 survey. The, the second one, um, just sort of my last point for the day, when you talked about the rhetoric versus the action, I think I mentioned when you and I were setting this up that I had a call with the, the sustainability leader for Walmart. So, you know, biggest retailer on the planet, right? And back in the day, I wrote for Diversity Inc. and sustainability was one of the things I covered. I've been talking to Walmart about these kind of issues since 2005. They've been a leader. I mean, they they were out front. They've been doing stuff. So it's not like Walmart is new to this party. But uh, they had just announced um, a thing called Project Gigaton, where they're making renewable energy sources available to their suppliers. They've They've aggregated it so that their suppliers can take advantage of it. And the number he used, and I don't know if this was all suppliers or a certain segment of suppliers, was 4,000 suppliers. The first step was just offering information. And 2,000 suppliers requested information. So that's only 50% of the 4,000, right? Project Gigaton starts with five suppliers participating in the program. Now, it's a pilot. And um, and he says, you know, if it works, we can easily replicate it yeah. and bring more suppliers on board. But, you know, the largest retailer in the world, only half of the suppliers who were offered, you know, information about how to become more sustainable in terms of your energy consumption, looked for information. That doesn't mean all of them did something. It just means, yeah, I'm willing to read a brochure. And, and Project uh, Gigaton starts with five suppliers. So it's, there's a long way to go, I guess is my point. No, absolutely. Especially when we take a look at the marketplace in terms of, you know, the, the impact that, uh, you know, supply chain has on almost every aspect of our lives. It's hard to get away from the, you know, the, the sustainability side of this, 
this has been systemic. This is not a new issue for supply chain. Uh, I think it's the, you know, not only the awareness now collectively for consumers and patients alike is out there because supply chain is no longer a, uh, a dark word that nobody understands right now. Uh, I think we need to do a much better job in explaining the impact that supply chain has not only on our economies, but on our lives and the ecology. I think that's everything I had for today. Abe, why don't you take us out? Thank you very much, Bob. And that is all the time that we have today. As we come to the end of our third year, I want to thank all of you for listening and making this podcast a success. We hope we'll be back for our next episode and for the next year as well. For The Rebound, I'm Abe Ashkenazi. And I'm Bob Trubelcock. All the best, everyone. The Rebound is a joint production of the Association for Supply Chain Management and Supply Chain Management Review. For more information, be sure to visit ASCM.org and STMR.com. We hope you'll join us again.